Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion Podcast. Hi, and we're back. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm very well, Paul. And you? Oh, very well. Thank you. So, continuing our series, what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, we're going to talk about product. You know, oh, the, that's my favorite thing, actually. The, the heartbeat of every SaaS company, you know, my ability to deliver world-class product is absolutely critical. And, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a core competence for any SaaS business. I'm delighted to have our guest on today to, uh, to talk to us about this. Can you introduce him? Yeah, so Carlos, Carlos Gonzalez Cadenas, is the Chief Technology Officer and Chief Product Officer for GoCardless. The interesting thing about Carlos is he's both uh, an entrepreneur and, a, and, a, and an absolute out-and-out product leader. You know, he's, he's a technology executive who's built his own business very successfully, a company called Fog, which was in the travel space that was acquired by Skyscanner. He then worked with Skyscanner to, to build out a, a really substantial product development and management capability through to the uh, acquisition of um, Skyscanner by the Chinese travel business, Ctrip. And what I love about Carlos and people like Carlos is they make complex challenges really simple. And he talks about helping technology companies to build what he describes as the, as the product machine. So delighted to have him on. Uh, Carlos, welcome to The Pain of Scale, our, our podcast series. Thank you very much for, for inviting me, Stephen and Paul. I'm delighted to, to be here with you guys. And I would love to basically try to share my experiences. And also thank you very much for the very kind introduction, the very kind words that uh, you, know, you guys gave at the very beginning. So thank you very much for, for having me. That's a pleasure. So, Carlos, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, GoCardless? Let me summarize it briefly. I think we, with GoCardless, in, in short, what we're trying to do is create the, the best platform for recurring payments. Uh, so, as of now, you know, you have uh, one-off payments like e-commerce payments, retail payments. This is solved. And you have, you know, credit cards and companies like Stripe and, and Adyen that really are doing a fantastic job at that. We believe that what is still not solved is recurring payments. Now, you know, some of the companies that there are using credit cards to, you know, handle recurring payments, but uh, cards are very bad for recurring payments in the sense that they are too expensive and they are essentially from the point of view of, of payment failures. They typically result in super high failures because obviously credit cards get stolen, get lost, and that results in a massive issue for, for businesses like, you know, fast businesses and subscription businesses that rely on payment mechanisms being reliable over time and you know not failing. So so we want to provide and we are providing a you know great solution for recurrent payments. We are using direct debit rails and open banking slash PSD2 rails to actually solve that. But you know our aim is to provide the very best platform for for businesses that need to you know take recurrent payments for them to be able to do that in a very effective in a very effective way. You know the trajectory of recurrent payments is fantastic. We are in a mega trend. Everything is moving to recurring uh, so you have uh, software used to basically be bought in a licensed way now it's basically bought in a subscription in a way so you have all the emergence of SaaS companies but even things that you used to be bought you know one by one you know using commerce or retail like for example movies uh, now are bought as a subscription with companies like Netflix or music that used to be used to be bought you know uh, one by one with iTunes or you know using physical you know CDs or DVDs uh, this is moving to, to Spotify. So essentially, there is a massive mega trend towards, you know, recurring, you know, payments. 
and we want to be the number one company, you know, delivering the best platform for people to collect, you know, recurring payments. Thank you, Carlos. And if I kind of set the scene, so look, we have, we've made more than 50 investments in, in enterprise SaaS companies. We currently have 40 companies in our portfolio. They range from the kind of early stage startup, you know, maybe 10 to 50 people, one to five million in revenues. And, you know, they're really focused on, am I really solving a problem worth solving? It's through to the grow up phase, which is kind of, build a business to solve that problem at scale and take this firm from 5 million in revenues to 25 million? And then can I get really, really big, really fast, the kind of scale-up phase? And through that journey, product is is absolute critical core competency for them. But the way they need to think about it is is different depending on the, the stage. And we've talked a little bit about this before, and you talked very clearly about the kind of different you know, these kind of different stages from discovery to the product machine to hyperscale. Maybe you could kind of elaborate on that for us a little bit and really put that into context of those kind of three stages. No, of course. I think if you think about a business that is, if you start, you know, with the, with the end in mind, you know, from my perspective, I think if you think about very successful businesses, you know, these businesses typically are at the scale. They typically have cracked three things, three key dimensions of any business. The first one is the, the viability. So, so essentially, you know, we have a, you know, business that works. We have a product that, you know, essentially is solving the problems of our customers and we have a way of monetizing it. They have solved the scalability problems, which is essentially around being able to increasingly add and, and more customers and get them into the business at a, in an efficient way. And they have also cracked the durability side of things. They have typically made their business very defensible so they can resist, uh, you know, attacks from other competitors and they have something in their business and in their product that is inherently very hard to replicate. It could be network effects, it could be data, it could be a variety of different things that make the, the business very, very difficult to, to attack from our perspective. So that, that's kind of the, the end. If you think how you get there, this is where, where it gets very interesting. And the typical journey, obviously, different companies or I, they obviously start focusing about on the viability side of things. You have a startup. They are pre-product market fit. They have an idea. Uh, they want to see if that idea basically works in the mar- market, if they can produce a product that uh, solves uh, customer problems. So essentially, in the startup phase, the business typically only cares about viability, essentially building something that customers want and, and figuring out if they can make any money. Then in, uh, in grow-up you know, phase, as you were mentioning, which is post-product market fit, you know, we have found something that a product that works in the market, customers want it. They are willing to pay for it. And the key thing there is scalability. Typically, in grow-up phase, you just typically you know, want to expand and capture as many customers as possible and prove that you have a you know, machine that can acquire as many, many you know, customers as, as possible. And this is typically, this type of scalability is typically done in a couple of dimensions. So one is uh, typically segments. You want to basically crack different customer segments with slightly different needs and try to serve as many of those as possible. And then typically, the other scaling dimension that is geographies. So typically, you want to focus on not just acquiring customers from a, from a single geography, but you want to start acquiring customers from different geographies. So th- this is the, the, the grow-up phase where essentially the business is mostly focusing on the scalability side of things. And then um, when you get uh, at the scale, you know, scale-up phase, the, the third phase that you mentioned, so it's typically the, the business tends to concentrate more in two dimensions. So one is obviously the business still continues focusing on scalability. 
So obviously you need to keep growing very fast. And typically you do that by you know either expanding into more segments or capturing adjacencies you know with new products. So that's one one thing that typically at the scale up you, you focus on. The other one is is durability. At that point you start you know caring a, a lot more about how you basically build your product in a way that makes it very difficult for others, for other competitors to, to attack, and that is essentially very difficult to, to replicate. So just to summarize, essentially the three important dimensions are viability, scalability, and durability. And this is what you know very successful at the scale businesses you know, show these three things. A startup phase tends to be more focused on viability. Grow-up phase tends to be more focused on uh, scalability and scale-up phase tends to be a mix of scalability and durability. So if we talk about that that viability phase, because I think what's quite interesting is we, you know, we, is they are quite different philosophical kind of challenges, aren't they? That, that says, you know, we've got, we've got a fundamentally different mindset, you know, viability, proving I can, I can scale the product machine, as you talk about it, and then the, the get really big, really fast and, and defend our business. That's the durability piece. Let's just drill into those, those three just briefly. As the founder in that early stage, you know, what are, what are the things I should be looking for to, to really give myself confidence that from a product perspective, I've, I've proven viability? Obviously, it's a very, very complicated you know, and, and very hard topic to address in a very simple way. It, it looks differently in very different businesses. And I've had many people say, well, you know, when you have product market fit, you know it. It's very difficult to formulate exactly what, what it is. I, th- I think the way I would uh, focus this in terms of when do you know that you have product market fit, I think you can look at a variety of signals. I prefer to look at the quantitative signals, even if you don't have a lot of numbers. Typically, in B2C businesses, you typically want to see customers coming back frequently enough to use your product again. I think if you don't have that in a consumer business, you don't have product market fit. If you have a very, very frequent need and customers don't come back again, you don't have a, a business and you don't have you know, product market fit. If uh, you get customers to basically come back again and again in a frequent way, you will see that you know, by you know, having a pattern of you know, uh, relatively high frequency and relatively high retention. I think that applies also to, to B2B businesses. It probably you need to look at slightly different metrics because uh, frequency in some cases is not the main thing, but, uh, but obviously churn is, is fundamental there. Uh, if you basically have a you know, high, high number in terms of churn, it's very, very difficult for you to build a business and, and you know, prove that you have product market fit. So essentially, you need to make sure that you are retaining customers over time and they come back again and again and, and basically uh, get the benefit from, from your product. I would say that these are the key signals that you can actually, you know, see when when you get to product market fit. As you go through those three stages, kind of, you know, the viability stage, the scalability, and the durability. What, from a product perspective, what stays the same and, and what changes? One way of looking at this is, I think there is a difference between the the what and the how. The fundamentals stay the same across the different, you know, phases. You always need to, you know, hire great people. You always need to basically understand your customers very well and their needs and engage effectively with them. You always need, you know, at all times, you know, to ship high quality products that solve these customer problems. You always need to move, you know, fast enough and react uh, fast to market changes. I think, I think this is what I would say doesn't change across the different stages. These are the fundamentals and you need to make sure that these fundamentals are holding at each you know, stage. And if you don't manage to get that, you typically get into problems. I think what changes 
quite a bit is the how. I mean, delivering on those fundamentals, you have to do that in a different way. You, you will need to put more effort to, you know, fix some of, of those, you know, things and deliver some of those things as you are scaling the business. So a few, a few of the examples of what becomes harder as you start scaling, you know, more and more. One example is essentially you typically have more customer types and more customer segments, and that makes it substantially harder to understand the customer needs and makes prioritization of the product function substantially harder. So that's one thing that typically, as you scale, tends to be harder and harder. The other part is that essentially you typically have way more people into the organization. You want to be able to deliver more and you want to be more aggressive in terms of your product roadmap. And that you know requires more people. And uh, ensuring that you hire the right persons, ensuring that you develop them appropriately, and ensuring that uh, you retain them becomes substantially harder as you are scaling from that perspective. So that's another point that becomes way harder. The, the, the third one, uh, I would say, is communications and ensuring that everyone is on the same page. I think it becomes very, very hard. So when you have, at the beginning, you know, five people in the same room, making sure that everyone is in, in the same page is trivial. When you have a 400-people organization product in, in eight or nine different offices, it becomes a really, really hard task. You know, but that also gets, you know, extremely complicated over time. And then, obviously, ensuring that you have a consistency of approach over time becomes harder. So essentially, initially, when you have uh, five engineers, ensuring that they are applying more or less the same principles in terms of how we develop uh, our product or the architecture is, you know, the architectural vision is shared, or that we are using the same tools and best practices is relatively easy. When you have 300 engineers, that becomes substantially harder. And then last one I would like to point out that becomes substantially harder is to also continue to move fast and react to market changes you know, faster. Obviously, when you're small, you're very nimble. And one of the advantages is that you can react very quickly. When you start scaling, continuing to move fast becomes substantially harder. And you, you need to put a lot of thought in terms of how you organize the product development organization to continue being you know, very agile and, and very fast as you basically increase the complexity and the size of the organization. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and as you go through those phases, of course, one of the, the key things that is going to evolve and develop in parallel is, is your go-to-market strategy. Um, it's well and good to be building the product, but we've got to make sure that customers acquire it and use it and retain it and expand. How do you ensure alignment of, of product with go-to-market? Great question, Stephen. So, so I, think, I think it requires two things, you know, primarily. The first one, and I think, I think this, this one sounds like an obvious one, but I cannot basically overstate the importance of getting this one right, which is having a commonly agreed terminology and a commonly agreed customer understanding, right? So that, that's the first thing, right? If we have, you know, five customer segments that we care about as a business, you know, calling this, these customer segments in the same way and, you know, having a shared understanding of what they need and how we are going to deliver the value proposition to them, this is crucial. I've seen in many cases a lot of misalignment caused by the fact that a part of the organization is referring to customer segments with specific names and another part of the organization is referring to customer segments with other names. And it's very, very difficult to actually get different teams to work together if they don't have the same terminology and if they don't have the same you know, common ground in terms of customer understanding. So, so solving the, the customer understanding piece, understanding you know, who we are targeting, what are the segments, what do they need, how do we call you know, these segments, and what is our value proposition for these segments is absolutely crucial. That, that helps everyone. That helps the product organization, 
because essentially we, we can figure out, you know, uh, what customers need. That helps the marketing team because they know how they need to pitch the product and what collateral they need to build. That helps the sales team because essentially they are much more effective asking the high gain questions, pitching the value uh, to all customers and making a, a case customers are going to care about. So it's going to help everyone, this commonly agreed terminology and customer understanding. That, that for me is level one. Level two is ensuring that we have a commonly agreed strategy and a commonly agreed plan in terms of, you know, where do we focus at what point in time? So typically what is going to happen is companies at a given moment in time, they are going to focus in a subset of all the potential segments that they could serve. And it's super important that, you know, we are all agreed on, you know, who we target when. So if we say, well, look, the priority segments for the next you know, couple of years are going to be A, B, and C, it is important that this is a commonly agreed goal that we have among the different teams, because obviously that's going to enable the entire organization to work in an aligned way. So the sales guys will target the, the right type of customers in the target segments. The marketing guys will focus their time in terms of, you know, lead generation and digital acquisition and, and product marketing in the right, you know, customer segments. And the product organization will focus their development efforts in, you know, essentially delivery the functionality and improving the product in the areas that matter the most for the target segments. This is very context specific. There will be many businesses that will require a slightly different approach. And obviously, as you're getting to more complex, you know, parts of, of the business, like for example, starting to scale internationally, you need to basically add additional frameworks to make that work, you know, really well. But I think the couple of points that I think are absolutely crucial, and I've seen many organizations getting them wrong, I think these two are really good to start, in my opinion. And then within that context, you're a, you're a really competitive guy. We still haven't had that game of table tennis. I I, I just remembering. So we need to we need to organise that. And you talk about we need to know how to win. Tell me a little bit more about that within the context of um, well, maybe in the context of Go Cardless and specifically in the context of, of product. What do you mean by that? I've been, you know, very lucky of, you know, having been involved in very interesting and successful businesses in the past and, and now with, you know, fantastic business like, like GoCardless. Uh, and also I've been, you know, working with a lot of entrepreneurs as, as an investor. Uh, I have invested in a variety of companies. I've seen quite a bit of companies that, you know, start up and scale up, you know, the stage. And I think one pattern that I've seen in a very clear way in most of the businesses has been businesses tend to get right two things. So one is the long-term vision. Like, you know, entrepreneurs tend to be really good at articulating, well, if, if we achieve what we want to achieve, here's how the world is going to look like. Here's how our product is going to transform this, this market if we succeed, right? So they're great at articulating that long-term vision. They are, they tend to be, companies tend to be also quite good at articulating the, you know, short-term, like using tools like OKRs or other tools like, well, what do we need to do this quarter and, you know, using techniques like Scrum, like what do we need to do over the next you know, couple of weeks, you know, for the next sprint. Companies tend to be pretty good at that. But I think where I've seen companies struggling in a big way is in what is in the middle between the super short term and the, you know, long-term vision. And it's articulating, okay, how are you going in precise terms? How are you going to get, you know, to deliver on your long-term vision? For me, what is absolutely fundamental is you need to be, able to articulate in, the, in a business, what are the three or four major milestones that are going to enable you to, you know, move from where you are today to, you know, execute on the, on the vision from aspect. 
And I think this is what is, in my opinion, fundamental. That is what we define typically in our product strategy and, and the business that I work with, you know, we typically put a lot of focus in nailing this product strategy right and really clearly understanding and really clearly articulating what are the, you know, three or four, you know, key milestones that we need to hit that are going to enable us to move from, you know, where we are today to actually, you know, be able to deliver on our, on our vision. And this is why what I refer on, on, you know, how to win, which is like, here's the, the four steps, the four big milestones that we need to deliver in sequence, you know, for us to be able to, to deliver on our vision and, and therefore, you know, win in the market. And who, you know, that couple of questions really about kind of the ecosystem and the network of, of product management excellence. Um, yeah. Who or what business do you think is the kind of the gold standard for product management? I don't think there is a single business that you can say, well, look, I mean, this is the, the business that is doing everything, you know, perfectly from my perspective. I, I, think, I think what I'm, I tend to see is I see businesses doing a part of the product discipline extremely well. And, and I tend to basically, you know, learn from different companies, different things, and try to complement, you know, um, and make sure that, I, that the team learns from the very best in the different, you know, categories and the different parts. So to give you a few examples of that, very, very different companies. So one is a tech media company and the other one is a, is a fashion business, Netflix and, and Inditex. So Inditex is the big holding group of brands like Zara and stuff like that, which by the way is a Spanish business. And it's one of the largest you know, fashion businesses in the, in the world. They have mastered customer science. They have really mastered the science of, of really understanding really very well what customers you know want and how to react very fast and deliver on their on their needs. So Netflix, you know, they do that by understanding, you know, the movie, you know, and the, the, the series DNA and producing their own content that is extremely successful and delivers, you know, on, on engaging, you know, the customers in a big way. In the text, for example, they have mastered what is called fast fashion, which is being able to actually use data of what is working in the in the different uh, shops, you know, worldwide. And being able to produce incredibly fast and get to the market, you know, from design to manufacturing to delivery, get in the shops what is working really well uh, from the point of view of uh, customer choice. So they have mastered the customer science, the, the customer understanding side of things. I, th- I think companies like like Booking.com, I think they have mastered experimentation at scale. Obviously, in consumer businesses, experimentation, coming up with hypotheses that can improve your product and being able to, to prove, you know, experimentally. They have mastered experimentation at scale. So they're running hundreds of experiments every month. And as a result, you know, their effectivity of their product is, is unmatched in the, in the hotels, you know, sector. They are typically converting in a, you know, way higher, you know, uh, rate than, than their competitors uh, due to, you know, having mastered this, this experimentation at scale. And you have companies like Spotify, for example, that they have really mastered the organizational side of things. They have mastered how to design and how to run great, you know, product organizations. And they have established the, the Squads and Tribes blueprint that I think, you know, has been widely used by many, many companies out there to as the blueprint to actually organize their own their own organizations. So these are these are a few examples. I think those are, those are great examples because they're, they're such strong brands that people can can readily latch onto and say, yes, I can understand the aspect of the simplicity of Netflix. I can understand the customer centricity of Zara. I can understand the, 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 the fundamental capability of, of uh, Spotify. And I can understand the, um, the, the impact that kind of experimentation has at booking.com. 
And then you translate that into your own world. I think that, that's, that's very powerful. Are there any specific individuals, product leaders, previous kind of um, luminaries within some of those businesses you look to and learn from? Yeah, I, th- I think there are a few. I think I, the, the ex-CPO of Netflix, Gibson Biddle, fantastic. You know, I, I tend to be always following you know, people that you know, have been running uh, product organizations at scale, even if they are not doing that anymore, but people that have strong and running organizations at scale. So I think, I think also Marty Kagan, fantastic. I think you know, he has one of the best you know, product management blogs out there. The, the Silicon Valley product uh, blog is one of the very best out there. So these are a couple of examples of people that I, I follow in the point of view of product management. There are many others that I follow in, in a specific, you know, niche part of the discipline. I mean, there are great people to follow from an experimentation perspective, great people to follow from the point of view of, you know, agile coaching and organizational design. Um, but, you know, I think these two are you know, really great guys to, to really follow. And when you talk about learning, we learn the most, obviously, from our mistakes. So... Any particular things, mistakes you've made on, on your journey that you, you don't want others to make in the context of product development, product management? Yeah, I, I think that the issue, Stephen, is that you know, I've made so many mistakes that probably will need another <laughs> hour to, to all those mistakes. So I believe I, I, I've done many of the you know, relatively obvious in hindsight you know, mistakes. But I think, I think you know, I'm going to choose for, for now for, the, for this podcast tool that may not be as obvious. The first one would be that I would like to recommend uh, when you're scaling a business, this applies to product leaders and you know, we're all executives in the organization, not exclusively to, to product management and to, or to product development. I think, I think thinking 12 months ahead in terms of your key hires, I think is fundamental because essentially when you are scaling up, I think the biggest limit in scaling up a business quick enough is how fast you can get your key hires done. And typically what it tends to happen is that you tend to hire these guys in a very reactive way. So when you have a problem, then you basically say, well, it seems that we have a big problem there. We need to basically open a, a new position and try to hire as soon as possible. But you already have a problem and you're a bit late to the game. I think, I think it's super important to be proactively planning those. So obviously, as you're scaling, you want to basically amplify the, the bandwidth of the organization to execute faster. And this is all going to be in a big way, depending on, you know, the key hires that you need to make for the organization. So I think, you know, one of the things that I've changed very significantly from the, you know, my initial experiences to now is that, you know, I, I plan way more carefully 12 months ahead, you know, what I'm going to need, you know, eight or months down the road. And, and that helps a lot to scale faster the business. We are proactively anticipating some of the problems that we're going to have, you know, a bit down the road. And we are continuously amplifying bandwidth. The organization is not going to get bottlenecked. I think, I think the other one is everyone is speaking about how you need to articulate your vision and your strategy and your plans and set direction for the teams and clarify that. How, how you do it matters a lot. It's not just about articulating you know, the vision and strategy. It's also about finding an, an extremely succinct way and an extremely easy way to articulate that vision and strategy. I, I always use the, the hallway test you know, from our perspective, which is, if you basically ask you know, people in the, in the corridor what your strategy is, people should be able to articulate that and remember it. If your strategy is so complex that people cannot remember it and cannot articulate that, then it's likely going to not be executed and people are not going to you know, make the right decisions on the ground. So you need to make sure that you put enough emphasis to make sure that your strategy and your vision are really, really easy to understand, remember. That will essentially ensure that you know, your people 
are clearly understanding and taking you know all these all these you know, bits into consideration when they are making their day to day choices, and it's going to ensure that people are going to be way more aligned. You know, they are going to be way more effective at, at doing their job, and that they are going to really be much more engaged with the, the overall direction of the of the business. Terrific. Um, we talked earlier on about we need to know how to win. What does winning mean to you in the context of Go Cardless? For us, in the context of Cardless, what it means essentially we are the dominant current payments network worldwide. When you think about uh, people using a system to actually process recurring payments to collect the recurring payments, we want to be the number one company that all the merchants out there think in terms of collecting the recurring payments. So we want all the subscription businesses in the world, all SaaS businesses or you know digital subscription businesses using Ocadless to collect the recurring payments as their main collection mechanism. And that is what winning looks like. Great. Well, I look forward to it. Carlos, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much, Carlos. It was a pleasure, Carlos. Always is.